Hello and welcome to the Two of People TV podcast. In this episode, we'll hear from Larry Zalkin, the professor of trombone at the Eastman School of Music. Enjoy. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Two of People TV, where we talk about Arnold Jacobs all of the time. I'm here in Rochester, New York, with Larry Zalkin. Larry, it's really great to see you. Nice to see you, Mike. Yeah, Larry is a professor of trombone at the Eastman School of Music here in Rochester, and for 33 seasons was the principal trombonist of the Utah Symphony. Right. And along the way, had some studies with uh, Arnold Jacobs. I did. I'm wondering uh, if you can uh, tell us how that all began, what what drew you to Jacobs initially, and uh, that sort of thing. Sure. I started my master's degree in uh, the fall of 78, and I had done a bachelor degree in music education, but I was a double major in music performance, very, very serious, and felt like I had some breathing problems that were holding me back. I had childhood asthma, and I was under the care of a doctor for the asthma, but uh, the medical care wasn't doing me a whole lot of good, and I felt like as a performer, I was kind of held hostage to whether I was going to have a good day or a bad day breathing. A bad day breathing meant you could uh, start coughing in a concert, Mm -hmm. taking breaths where you didn't want to, changing the dynamics where you didn't want to, and I was just very frustrated. And I heard so much about Arnold Jacobs teaching, a lot of it from Gene Corning. We were schoolmates at USC. and. I had scholarship at USC, uh, so but I qualified for student loan for living expenses. So I decided to live with my parents for that year and take that student loan and study with Jacobs. So six thousand dollars. Wow! And in 1978, that could get you a whole year's worth of travel and lessons. That's great. So that's what I did. So he showed up there that first time. What did he? Uh, what was that like? It was very intimidating. I, he was the nicest man and, and so warm and outgoing and yet just knowing who he was, it was, you know, a little little intimidating. And you walked into his studio there on Michigan Avenue and there were a lot of machines I'd never seen before, you know, and um, in playing, I'm, the first thing I expected was that he was going to talk about breathing. But the first thing he wanted me to do was play something lyrical in musical forms. I played a movement of Vivaldi Charleston on it. And uh, he was really happy I played Vivaldi and talked about music for another 20 minutes and how as brass players, we were musicians, not brass players, and uh, went on and on about that. And then he had me breathe into a machine that had the floating dowel with the graph paper and the, the spirometer. The spirometer, yeah. yeah. So, and that's the way the lesson started. How did you do with the, the uh, spirometer part? Would that reveal anything? He was very animated and excited. He, he told me that, you know, that, that my capacity was really good and that um, he showed me how the graph went down. And then he actually, with a pencil, drew in what was the normal or what he thought was the normal one. Um, and then he proceeded to show me how to breathe that would compensate for the asthma that I had. And I was skeptical. I mean, you know, you figure, well, all the inhalers and all that aren't doing it. What, what, what is he going to show me? 
but um, was it was astounding how much improvement I made in that lesson in that room just by learning how to breathe. And I had great teachers. I'd always I've always told my students whatever my problems are on my plane, it's not because of my teachers because I had good ones. But um, nobody had talked to me about breathing, about the mechanics of breathing, how to breathe, how to incorporate those mechanics into making music. And that was the whole thing. Everything he told me about how to just take a breath and how to exhale was in the context of, of making music. And it transformed my playing. Do you remember any of the specifics, uh, the exercises, or what he told you about the mechanics, or what was it that you do? He did some funny things. Um, he told me to take as big a breath as I could, so I did. And he said, now take in more. And I did, now take in more, and I did. And he looked at me and said, if you took your biggest breath, how come you keep adding to your breath? And it's so, it was so ridiculous. I never thought about it. I mean, I'm doing this, and it still isn't dawning on me. <laughs> and then he asked me to exhale, and then cough, and cough, and cough. And I could keep coughing out more air, so I wasn't emptying. And he proceeded to explain to me in great detail how the lungs were at, you know, vertical expansion versus horizontal expansion. <clears throat> was eye-opening for me. It's crazy. I mean, I was uh, already four years of college behind me, and nobody had really said that. You know? Did he Did he uh, talk about um, breathing from bottom to high or high to bottom or just this bellows thing? Or do you remember anything about that? The bellows, that's funny. He used the bellows a lot as an analogy and um, talked about the bellows in the fireplace. He wanted me to uh, always um, compress the chest very last. The bellows happened at the very end of the exhale. Um, and uh, it, it was always, yeah, boy, that's a lot of memories. I, re I remember that, a lot of talk about that. About the bellows activity. Yeah. yeah. So how did that help you um, in, in terms of your playing? All of that. When you're really using your abdominal muscles and you're really using your diaphragm muscles, uh, the little inconsistencies you have in your airways, they don't affect you that much because these, these muscles are so strong, they're so powerful. When you're using them properly, if you have small airways that are collapsing a little bit, you can kind of compensate for it. It's amazing, amazing what you can do. And that's what I learned. So you were, uh, maybe what it sounds like you were uh, underusing your breath somewhat, and so then the, would your, your asthma would, would the, kind of not, well not kick in, but the narrowing of the, of the airways was an issue. Where, where, when you would take more air in a full breath, am I getting this correctly? Am I interpreting this? If you, if you have some kind of a, if you turn on your garden hose and it has a kink in it, when there's enough volume of water going through, the kink disappears. And that's kind of what happened with me. So just learning to take a larger breath more often. Um, yeah, and but the end result is I took far fewer breaths. I ended up, I, I had a big capacity. I just, uh, I wasn't able to use it. And when you feel that, that spasm, you want to choke back. It's just your instinct. So when you feel the spasm is when you, 
really focus on moving your air and spam the spears. You know? So, um, yeah. He measured, you know, I'm not a big guy. I'm about five, eight and a half. And at the time, I probably weighed 130 pounds. And, uh, you know, I went in there and he said that I had a, a vital capacity of six liters. And that's a lot for a kid my size. Five, he said, yeah. But he said that, and he was excited. He said, I have, you know, 4.4 to 4.5 usable liters. You know, but I didn't feel like I had that much at the time. Again, you have to use it right. And now, you know, I, I'm tested every couple of years just to make sure everything's good. And, and I do have that capacity, and then, but the, the curve on the chart is much better than it was when I was a kid. I'm an old guy now, it should be worse. I, you know, I just keep remembering all that I learned. And I teach that way. I mean, my young students all understand the mechanics of how they breathe. And that's what I learned mostly from Jacobs is, you know, you have to know what you're doing. Yeah, right. <laughs> that first uh, lesson or two seemed pretty revelatory for you, just uh, figuring that out. What about what what uh, what um, what kept bringing you back after that? What was? Yeah, I had uh, mechanical problems in my plane. And I was able to hide them, and one of them was a, an attack issue. Um, I learned about the first time anybody ever mentioned the word Valsalva was, was Jacobs. Never heard the term, didn't know what it meant, and didn't understand what was happening. I, mean, I could hide it, I could control it. But he was so intuitive. And he said, you know, you're feeling this, this, and this. And I just thought, to him, like, how do you know that? You did not pick that up from my plane. But he did, you know, clearly he did. So we worked a lot on the rhythm of attacks. And that had such a huge effect on my plan. I see it now with my own students. I mean, how you prepare a note, how you attack it, it affects everything, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, so I went back because he was helping me with that, you know? The other thing he helped me with a lot, and people don't usually equate Jacobs with this, was how to control how you articulate it, you know? Um, how to use your air. He contended from the very start that I, I'm too tongue-oriented and not enough air-oriented, and uh, it changed the way I articulated. And all these things changed my playing, and they, they define my playing today. You know, that's that's what I think about. I don't always execute it the way he would like. And sometimes I could see him being very dissatisfied with what I just did, but um, but that's the way I think. And that's the way I teach. So he helped me with articulation. He helped me with attacks. And then, you know, he helped me with music. And people don't, like, sometimes I hear people talk about Jacobs and what he was about. Um, to him, and this was my lessons, uh, I think you said it yourself, that he was very individualized in how he taught. But he would teach me how to use my ear and make a phrase. And it's amazing how much more beautiful your phrase is when you really know how to use your air. And he's the one of the first, you know, you have to have the technique to be musical. And um, that's kind of been my mantra, yeah. <laughs> you know, since I heard him say it. So. Right. Oh, just getting back to the, uh, the Valsalva, can you, can you demonstrate for the viewers just what it was that you were doing that got his attention? It just, it was just random. I mean, I just, 
there were so many things that I wasn't thinking about. And um, at the time, I was studying with a teacher who was very famous, famous as a player, famous as a teacher. And he advocated, you know, you're going to make an attack, take your breath, bring your tongue up, get ready. And then when you're ready to start the note, release your tongue and start the air. Okay. Oh, did that mess me up, you know? And I didn't have a great rhythm to my attack to start with, and that destroyed it. So um, his concept of a rhythm of attack, and since then, you know, I, to me, in every athletic event, there's a rhythmic windup. I have a student now who's uh, like a PGA golfer. <laughs> He's just a young kid. And uh, we were in a studio class one time, and I was working on attacks with a kid who was playing. And I was talking about the backswing in tennis or in, in baseball or everything. And I said to him, I said, so do you think about this when you golf? And he had to really think because it was instinctive. He said, I think a triplet. Da, 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 da. And he had to actually think of it to, to realize that he did that. Everybody has a rhythm to everything that they do, but I have a rhythm in my tag. And once I got that concept, it was a, another one of those revelations for me. Yeah. So I went back to work on tax as well as working on uh, breathing. And then the end of that year, I mean, it was just working on music. A lot of it was how to use your air to make a phrase, you know, and certainly you make a phrase and he would remind you to do something and the phrase would become so much more powerful, so much more energy. Um, but, uh, you yeah, know, there's always reasons to go back and work with him. <laughs> <laughs> did, he, did he get you to, uh, did he ever talk about where to put the air? You know, he talked about you were, uh, you, you were too tongue oriented. He mentioned that he said that to you. Did he give you a, an antidote to that or what was the resolution for that? So here's a, a story. You, you can decide whether you want to put this in the video or not. But um, I always recorded my lessons. And sometimes you get very technical. And there was this one time I had flown in really late the night before. And I was very tired. And he started talking about muscles and cranial nerves. And I wasn't catching all of it, but I knew I was recording it. And he says, yo, man, do you understand what I'm saying? And I said, uh, yeah. He said, no, you don't. <laughs> I said, I'm recording it. I'm going to study it. And, and then I guess it just convinced him to take the simple-minded approach. He says, you know, if you think the letter O, everything goes into perfect place. And he started talking, you know, when you inhale, when you exhale, when you make an attack, everything, if you think the letter O, and then he explained, you know, okay, so the glottis is in the right place, the larynx is in the right place, you have your your throat, you know, kind of open in the right way, your tongue's in the right place, your armature's in the right place. But he said, you don't have to think about that, just say the letter O as you do it. And it was so cool to think that way. And now, you know, when I teach, um, I explain what's going on when they think the letter O, exactly as he did with me. That's great, but I use that that whole vowel thing, you know, so that he would he would say, you know, put this concept. And he was not a T person, he was a D person, you know, so to him, uh, I mean with me, and I think, again, as you said, individualized, because I was using so much attack as a young kid, um, and that's just the way I 
playing now, you know. So, uh, what about uh, the musical aspect of it? What, what did you find? Uh, how did you find him to be uh, uh, talking about music with you? You know, you mentioned off camera about playing the Brahms songs for him, and uh, he played Vivaldi for him in the first lesson. I'm sure he appreciated Vivaldi over Bordoni um, for a change, because a lot of trombonists who would come in with him would uh, would play Bordoni. I bet. It was interesting. I mean, he loved it if you came in with lyrical solo music. You know, I decided I want to play excerpts for him. And he made it very clear that he didn't want to give me musical guidance on the trombone excerpts. And I don't know if he did that with everybody. But, you know, I went and I wanted to play Bolero, you know. So how would you phrase this? And he didn't want to commit that much hmm. on that. Interesting. You know, now Riley Valkyrie, he would. He had a lot to say, but you know, you come in and play Mach 3 or Two Miriam, and he, you know, and this was maybe just with me. I mean, I was young when I was mm -hmm. um, 22. That's not that young, actually. <laughs> maybe, he, maybe he was wanting to defer to your, your principal teachers. Perhaps. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. You know, play the Ride of Valkyrie or Hungarian March, and he would have a lot to say about rhythm, articulation, musical, things like that. But those excerpts that were more trombone-oriented and less tuba-oriented, he didn't want to give me a whole lot of feedback. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But, uh, you know, come in with uh, um, a block cello piece, and boy, he had a lot to say about yeah. that. You know, he loved the lyrical stuff. He, this is, and again, you know, everybody's going to have their own memories and probably was so individualized to him. He always was influencing me to use more vibrato. And um, and that was interesting. And uh, he made the comment that, um, you know, singers work so much on their vibrato. He says, for us, it's just a light switch, you know, it's on or off. And it really got me thinking. And I'm telling you, from the time I left him, I spent so much time working on my vibrato. And, my students know they have to put a metronome on and they work on the, the width and the speed and the roundness of their vibrato. And uh, I think that's what he was insinuating. He said, you know, we need to take a vibrato over and work on it. Mm. Um, he liked a lot of bounce in, in the influence he gave me. And uh, sometimes I used it sometimes as the way excerpts the mainstream moved, it all of a sudden wasn't as appropriate. Right. But, yeah. um, but his style was so clear. I mean, you hear a recording, and it seems like you're not sure if the orchestra is, but two of the say, oh, that's him. You can always tell. Just yeah. So musical. <laughs> we were talking the other day with uh, Toby Hanks, and that was a uh, style, was a big part of Mr. Hanks' time with Jacobs in terms of. Uh, learning how to play the instrument through imitating the style and uh, not being concerned with the tuba, but really conceptualizing the style and then just imitating that style, thinking that style in mind, uh, and then just let it, let it manifest in the instrument. Pretty interesting. It's so interesting. Hey, I, I, Jenkins, I think, was, was really, uh, he, was, he was definitely about style, and he knew that if you can get, if you can play with style, then you're 
you're not really going to be thinking about how you're playing. You're just going to be thinking about communication. Right. Which is right. interesting. That's so true. I've been trying to figure out how many lessons I took with him. I know I took three after that year total. I think I either took seven or eight lessons during the year. So you like probably a 10 or 12 or 15 lessons or something. That's pretty good. At most, I had 12. You know, I think it may have been 11. <clears throat> Coming from the LA area, um, my impression being a West Coaster myself, born and raised in Portland, um, the influence of the LA brass uh, pedagogy was more prevalent in Portland than, say, the Chicago pedagogy. Do you have any observations on as to why the you know the, the, the Jacobs thing didn't quite get to LA as strongly as, as other cities um, around? It was interesting growing up in Los Angeles in that era because I don't think the West Coast, East Coast stylistic differences are as prevalent now as they were back then. Yeah. Back then, it was a big difference. I remember I didn't learn how to play the alto trombone because um, in LA, I was like, why do you want to use that on that? It's a matter you don't got the chops, you know? Like, yeah, I got the chops, I'll play it on tenor. And then I got, you know, to my symphony job and I got my first few years under my belt without having played the alto. So there I am, I'm 27 years old. I've never played an alto trombone. And all of a sudden, the guest conductor's coming. Oh, by the way, I want Schubert 8 on alto, you know? But, oh my God, where am I going to get an alto, you know? And, so I had to learn in my mid to late 20s on the job how to play the alto. And uh, it was something that the East Coasters just just did for the sound. Of course, now I play alto all the time. But um, it was a real load on my section mates to have to deal with me learning the alto on the job in the same way. There were differences in sound and legato. Uh, did the West Coasters wanted a click to their legato. A lot of them didn't natural slur. A lot of them tongue slurred on their legato. They would say that the East Coasters sounded portmento. It sounded like there was slide noise, like it wasn't as clean. Uh, I think now the mainstream is to natural slur as much as you can. And then there were the sound differences. And the West Coast sounds were much brighter, more brilliant, and um, I would come into lessons with some of the West Coast players and they would say, you know, it's not the right sound. I mean, it's too tubby, you know, they would say because it was dark. And now those sounds are less. Um, you go to Jacobs and he wasn't interested in whether your sound was bright or dark. At least, you know, in my experience with him, he was interested if your sound was good or bad, you know, and, and he seemed to think that your sound, you know, he wanted you to get the most versatility out of your sound. That's what you talk about, you know, universal sound, or, you know, beautiful sound. And <clears throat> so that was nice. I think the West Coasters were a little set in their ways. And, um, uh, but I, you know, at the same time, I learned about Jacobs on the West Coast from West Coasters. So, mm -hmm. um, so he was certainly well known. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anybody else that went there to study with him, though. Whereas I think people in the Midwest were flocking to him. Just you and Procorny, Mr. Procorny. That was about it, as far as you knew. Yeah, Gene was ahead of me in school. So he, yes, 
he had taken lessons. Mm-hmm. You know, now that you mention it, he was a big influence on me going to to going to Jacob's Chink Carnival. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, in the almost 90 or so interviews, nobody's talked about the Balsalva quite the way you you have and how you were taught to go like that. That's really interesting. In 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 my era, I'm sounding like my grandfather a little bit, but in my day, <laughs> um, West Coasters I think had like a lot more ping to their attack, and there was just a lot more tongue compression. Uh, when they played, even though Legados had a lot more tongue compression, and I'm kind of generalizing, but in the East Coast, it was more, less attack, more just kind of instant sound. And uh, to me, Jacobs wasn't saying, I want you to attack this way or, or that way. He was saying, I want you to have the control to make the kind of attack you want. And you can have that kind of tension in your tongue if you were gonna do that. And you know, one of the things I learned from him, I do this demonstration, is somebody would come in and play, you know, slow movement or a shoe or something, and I'll play the end of Till or William Tell or something, just really loud with a lot of definition, and I'll make the point, you know, I'm probably using like 20% of the tongue compression that you're using to play this, you know, slow movement of Corelli, and that was what I learned from Jacob. So less is more. Less, less effort, more results. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I I got the feeling that Jacob's dealt a lot with people who were coming to him with problems, all solve a rhythm of attack, things like that. But, um, you know, my problems weren't like that, but, um, but they could have been. You, you were maybe on that early part of that path. Once you get your technique in order, it goes away. <laughs> right. So what about uh, some great stories? Uh, um, off camera, you were telling me about uh, the CSO coming through Salt Lake. Yeah, we, we had an orchestra manager. His name is Cheryl Swenson. And Cheryl had this philosophy that if you could build excitement for your orchestra by bringing in big orchestras. And a lot of orchestras now think that you're competing with yourselves so you don't want to bring them in. I thought it was great to have these big orchestras and I thought it built excitement. I also felt like, you know, people would come to our concerts and say, boy, these guys don't sound that much, you know, worse than Chicago. Well, sometimes we do. But um, so Chicago Symphony came through. They had played in Chicago. Um, they had played in St. Louis. They played, I don't remember where else, but then they were on their way to Los Angeles. And um, we said, come play in our hall, you know, for reduced fee, of course, but it's on your way. And they always did it. You know, we got Cleveland, we had Pittsburgh, we had New York Phil. I heard um, I, I heard the New York Phil do pictures, and I heard Warren Deck do it on F2, but and that below. My wife, my friends in the orchestra, everybody will tell you, never in our lives have we heard a below like that. And we heard it live, and he was on an F2, but and he sounded like he was playing in the middle of a horn, and he did these phrasing things. Anyway, I'm off the subject. So Chicago came, they did Bartok and Chara for orchestra, and one of the members of our orchestra had everybody over for dinner after the concert, so we got to meet these musicians. And uh, that was great to talk to Jacobs, and Gene knew him really well. So um, um, I was a student, but I wouldn't ask him to go out to breakfast, but Gene asked him to go out to breakfast and invited me to come, so it was great. 
So I took my horn out at, at the hall early in the morning and was going to warm up and I heard a bass trombone was playing box suites and it was just beautiful. It's beautiful playing. It's so musical and so lyrical. It's a great sound. And I figured it had a decline anyway, but uh, it was very early. Our, our rehearsal started at 9.30 and this was maybe 8 in the morning. And I guess that was his practice is to get to the hall very early before the plane left and, and get his practice in. And I was young and brash, and I went up to him. I said, why are you retiring? You sound beautiful. And he said that uh, actually his chops had never felt better, ever felt better, but that uh, his hearing was damaged, and that because of his hearing issues, he was retiring. And uh, boy, that was a shocker to me. But, um, but yeah, so... Um, and in that morning, Gene and I had breakfast with with Jacobs. That's nice. A nice, uh, nice bit of uh, socializing. Uh, socializing with him. I, Jacobs, I know, probably could have played another couple of years, but his his eyesight. He said he could still play, but his. I mean, the librarians were having to blow up the music to really big proportions because of his his failing eyesight and. Uh, Right. Um, he really, uh, he really missed the orchestra. I know. Years later, again, I was with Gene, and we went out to lunch with Jacobs, and this was in Chicago. And I remember saying, you know, how are you doing? He said, Oh, I miss the orchestra so much. And I thought, I think it was a, such a huge part of his identity was, was you know, the tunes of Chicago Symphony. So. Um, yeah, you see that. It's a funny thing, too. Now I'm remembering, I talked to Kleinhammer, and I said, so after you retire, I said, are you going to keep playing? And he said, no, clip in the case. I'm not going to play again. And he described what it would be like to try to keep your chops up to the standard that you have always had. Of course, if you're retired, why would you practice that much? But how are you going to enjoy playing if... It's not at that standard. And he just described this so clearly. And I thought, I'll be the same way. I wouldn't be happy, you know, not sounding my best. And it's very funny because years later, Van Haney moved to Tucson to retire. And they were coming in saying, please play in the Tucson Symphony. And he said, okay. So he did two years of it and then he quit. And then I saw him when I was on tour in, in Arizona. And I said, so you're not playing in orchestra? And he says, it took me so long to get back in shape to play the concert. And then I didn't want to keep it up. So, you know, I'm retired. So I would let it go. And then the concert would be coming up. And it would take me so long to get my chops up again. And finally, I decided I retired. I'm not going to do it anymore. And it was just like Kleinhammer. And I just, I can see I'd be the same way, you know. Guys like that are not going to be happy if they're not in pretty well shape. Yeah, and now if you're doing, you know, you're, you know what you can do and what you're capable of. And... So the mind is willing, but the flesh is weak. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really that's really true. And um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> off the subject. Well, you know, uh, Joe Allman tells a story. Joe's uh, just finished with his master's at Northwestern in trombone. He was up at Eau Claire for his, his bachelor's. So he had an opportunity to get to know Mr. Kleinhammer a little bit. Kleinhammer mm -hmm. came down, down to Eau Claire and gave a master class. And, Joe tells the story of, of Mr. Kleinhammer uh, at his church up in northern Wisconsin uh, playing a hymn or something for some special occasion that he had, 
that they had asked him to do, and he he did it. You know, he worked it up, and 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 uh, Kleinhammer evidently was not happy with what he did. But when he looked out into the congregation, there were tears flowing. Oh, it was so beautiful. Oh, <laughs> you know. So. Yeah, standards. It's all about standards, huh? I think so. Yeah. Well, um, really, can't thank you enough for uh, allowing us to come into your your new home here in Rochester. Uh, uh, just flew in last night. You just flew in last night. Got got home about two in the morning, and when I showed up at your door at nine, as per our arrangement, but I, I mean, still, nevertheless, it's oh, it's my pleasure. It's a that was very generous of you. And uh, we'd like to uh, present you with this genuine Tube of People TV water bottle uh, for your uh, hiking pleasure in Tetons next summer. It sounds great. I will use it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's really great to see you again. Same here. Yeah. Like, same here. It's great all, to see you. All the best at, uh, at Eastman. And, uh, keep, keep that going. You have quite the legacy with, with uh, you know, Remington and Marcellus and Blocking. Somebody has to do this Miranda Remington legacy someday. Someday, but I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, thanks for being part of it. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. And now back to you.